Welcome to the Sex Cafe podcast. Today we're going to have an interesting conversation on intimate partner violence as it relates to sex and human sexuality. With me today, I have two dear and esteemed colleagues at UCF, and I will let them introduce themselves, their pronouns, and what is it that they do within the organization. Which, all, which are all social determinants of that violence, right? Social determinants of health. Wonderful to have you here. And to my right, I have another very special and dear guest from my own college. Hi, uh, my name is uh, Dr. Julie O'Connor. I am an assistant professor in social work. And uh, like Jackie, I'm a member of the Violence Against Women faculty cluster. Um, my pronouns are she, her. My research is uh, focused on violence, obviously, but I'm uh, specifically interested in primary prevention. So a lot of my work looks at, and primary prevention means trying to stop violence before it ever occurs. So a lot of my work looks at those who perpetrate harms and violence and trying to understand their attitudes, beliefs, and other risk factors for perpetrating and understand how we can mitigate or reduce those risk factors. My practice experience before I came into academia was in this field, so I worked in uh, domestic violence shelters, also worked uh, rape crisis hotlines. I worked at the prosecuting attorney's office out in Seattle, Washington, as a legal advocate for victims of domestic violence at the felony level, so like the most extreme levels of, of violence, and all of that work led me into kind of academia and addressing, you know, these these issues and thinking about how we can stop violence and help those who've experienced it. My teaching, I, I teach social work classes about practice, but I also teach a violence against women in the global context class as well as a human sexuality class that I've had Umberto actually guest lecture. That was delightful, actually. Your students, your master's students are very, very interested in topics related to sexuality. So that speaks to how interesting you're making that class for them. They were very, very active there. Greetings to all of them if they're listening. <laughs> so as an icebreaker, can we tell our listeners what are we drinking today? Green tea, but I don't remember. It had some fancy name. Jackie, do you remember? We're drinking the same thing.
<laughs> yes, and I am having my usual dark roast with cream, no sugar. So let's start talking about a little bit of what does intimate partner violence en en encompasses. And the American Psychological Association Dictionary of Psychology mentions that it is the physical, psychological, or sexual abuse of one person by another in a closed relationship. And even though it's kind of a short definition, there's so much to unpack there, right? Uh, it goes hand in hand with the approach that we take here in the podcast of thinking of health as a three-dimensional construct of physical, psychological, and mental. So I know, Jackie, you mentioned that you study some of those determinants of violence within those three realms. Can we start unpacking a little bit some of those? I think it's also important, Jackie was starting to mention some maybe less well-known um, types of intimate partner violence. So some other ones are sexual violence. So the sexual violence can incur within an intimate relationship. Often we think of sexual violence as kind of stranger danger of rapists jumping out of a bush in a dark alleyway, right? But we know that a lot of sexual violence actually occurs in the context of relationships. So for example, it is, it is feasible and it happens that one could rape their spouse, something that in the past actually we didn't think was possible, but now we know it. So it's important to think about sexual violence, especially I think given the context of this podcast, right? Absolutely. And then another form of, of intimate partner violence that is becoming increasingly common is technology facilitated or digital digital violence that occurs through where people might use cell phones or other devices to stalk and harass their, their partner in some way. Very, very uh, common, especially kind of with younger generations where cell phones are almost part of the body, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. you can very much use it to, to stalk and control and harass somebody else. So that kind of relates to a question that I had and we had started to talk about it, which is recognizing those elements of intimate partner violence and helping our listeners to identify that is not only physical violence, it's not only your typical beating race in the hand, and but there's also threats, there's also digital repercussions of getting involved into violent behaviors. So what kind of signs are red flags that our listeners can start looking into? Hey, is this a healthy relationship or are there some concerns that 
perhaps even early concerns that they have, they can recognize as red flags. I think, yeah, related to that is certain things that in our society sometimes we see as a sign of love. Um, so jealousy, for example, right? Like we often think like, oh, you know, he's jealous. That means that he really cares for me. He wants, he wants to know where I am all the time, right? He really cares for me. And in the beginning of the relationship in particular, that might be flattering. But we see that the extreme jealousy in particular is is linked with perhaps physical violence um, down the road. Um, and jealousy is often an indication of wanting to have kind of this power and control over over the partner. So looking at things like, you know, do you receive a gazillion texts a day and are you expected to respond right away? And what happens if you don't? Are you made to feel guilty? Are you made to feel bad? Are you, are you walking on eggshells about how somebody might explode in anger? Mm -hmm if you don't kind of do these behaviors that correspond to whatever that, that partner wishes. So I think looking at things like jealousy, how, how people respond to text messages or expecting you to share your passwords, your location, these kind of things that might be normalized for some people, but they can be taken to an extreme if, if they're used in a way that exerts power and control.
And even if it doesn't escalate, if it stays at that point, it's just that repetitive sequence of microaggressions that just accumulate over time. While the physical outcomes or the physical consequences of IPV may be a little more obvious to our listeners, why does IPV actually matter? What are those consequences that we can unpack? You know, while physical might be obvious, there's some physical damage. Why does it matter? I think, first of all, because of its prevalence. Um, so, again, we might think that the intimate partner violence or domestic violence is kind of something that only happens between married couples and it's fairly not common, even though we see it, you know, in movies or whatever. But we know that, that one in three women over the course of their lifetime will experience physical and and or uh, sexual violence, most likely at the hands of their, of their intimate partner. So... One in three, that's 30% of women, right? 33% of women. There are three women in this room right now. So just really, I think, first of all, just, just thinking about the magnitude of it and how common it is, is one of the, the first reasons why it matters. Because I sometimes think, you know, if this, was, if this was some sort of pandemic, although this metaphor might be outdated given COVID, but if this was, you know, some sort of physical ailment that was on people's body, we would have the National Guard in the streets, right? If 30 three percent of the of the population was was infected with some sort of harmful virus or something so i think that's the first thing and then of course the the people who are impacted right the survivors or victims it ha it has a large large range of impacts on their life right from physical violence as we've been talking about injuries unwanted pregnancies stis to psychological impacts uh, mental health increased rates of ptsd post-traumatic stress disorder depression anxiety substance use etc etc the list keeps going on right which is part of your research jackie so what have you have you conducted any of these data collection locally in orlando or nationally within the u.s and what does it show in terms of these effects that julia just mentioned So as we see then, it's not only within the couple circle, uh, the couple themselves, but affects the circle within that couple. And I, what I love about that definition of the APA Dictionary of Psychology, it says that the couple may be heterosexual or same sex, and they may be or have been dating, married, or living together, which speaks to what Julia was mentioning earlier, that we typically think of, you know, a heterosexual couple that has been married for so long, and then something goes awry right and apart from violence and threats of abuse control is the hallmark of that abusive relationship what do we know about that ultimate goal of power and control how does that drive 
those other elements? What triggers those feelings or that need for power and control? Power and control. So how we typical, typically think about it is that um, violence is actually enacted by the abusers of those who perpetrate as a way of maintaining power and control over the survivor or the victim. So that, that violence, physical violence, for example, is kind of just one mechanism of exerting power and control. It's not the ultimate goal. The, the ultimate goal is kind of to get somebody to go along with, with what you want. And so physical violence, for example, is often used um, as a way of kind of a reminder of what will happen, but it doesn't need to be exerted each and every time because there's always that threat, right? So that all of these different types of violence we see are a way of, of breaking somebody down and kind of lessening their resistance. A lot of abusers or perpetrators isolate the, the victims so slowly over time, maybe give them a lot of grief if they're going to spend time with friends. And so then it becomes not worth it to, fr to spend time with friends because they know when they get home, there'll be a big fight. So slowly kind of, you know, and some of it is, is much more drastic where there's actual, you know, real repercussions that happen. But over time, people become isolated. And that's another tool kind of to where the, the perpetrator or abuser is able to maintain that survivor or victim in, in this very small circle, which often just the, the two of them and maybe some kids. Um, and they're, they're not able to, to seek resources and leave because that, that person has isolated them so much. So not all forms of violence are created equal, right? And uh, some people are affected more than others. Do we have some information about uh, who is at greater risk, for example, by gender between men and women? Right. And uh, some people are affected more than others. Do we have some information about uh, who is at greater risk, for example, by gender between men and women? Yeah, generally women are at greater risk, and that is not saying that um, domestic violence or intimate partner violence doesn't happen to, to men as well, it does, but just that women are impacted at, at greater rates and also often the impact on them is more serious. So the types of, of violence that they might experience might be more serious. They often, women are often more afraid of particular, if they're in an abusive relationship with a man, of, of the impact of the violence on them than men might be of, of violence from, from women. But we also do see that there's increased risks in LGBTQ relationships, for example. So we might not think that that would be the case, but we actually find higher rates among, among those populations. So that it's not as straightforward as just saying, you know, just women are at risk, which is maybe an old school way of thinking about it. And we're definitely have not found that in the research and are kind of moving away from that, that women are at risk, but so are lots of other people.
Now, how about some other demographics? For example, culturally, the race and ethnicity may play a role, especially within that cultural context of of loving, for example, in the Latin American community, that machismo and that like male-centered culture may also be a trigger for that. What do we know about race and ethnicity as, as an intersection for violence? And especially as we have learned so many ways that these specific acts can be perpetrated, right? They can be physical, they can be mental. So there's a lot to weave when we talk about demographics and what are we specifically trying to, to get to, right? Now, Julia, earlier you mentioned that some of your research focuses on uh, preventative interventions and how do we prevent intimate partner violence. What are some factors that you plug into your interventions that actually have proven efficacious? Yeah, so Jackie actually mentioned before some of the attitudes um, that we see sometimes are, are linked with perpetration. So things like in, endorsing hostility towards women or traditional gender roles. So some of the interventions that have tried to focus particularly on kind of cis straight men as potential abusers in the, in the future have looked at how do we reduce some of these attitudes, right? How do we think about gender roles in a more dynamic, expansive way than to the typical kind of gender role of like the, the woman is at home, you know, doing the cooking and caring for the child and the man is the, the breadwinner, all these stereotypes that we have. When those, those kind of values become more embedded, they can then kind of lead to, to this chain of, of thinking that can end up with perpetration. So trying to, to tackle some of those attitudes, I think head on is, is one way that, that people look at how to pre prevent things like this. Another, and that is sometimes done more with sexual violence, but our bystander intervention programs, which I like to sit very broadly and simply say, is basically like, if you see something, say something, something. right? So like, but it could go beyond just like if you see somebody hitting somebody say something, which we would think most people would do, although actually studies show they don't always. But also if you see other behaviors that are kind of on the continuum. So if you see cat calling on the street, for example, do you intervene and say like, hey, that's not cool? Or do you intervene to the person who's being harassed and say, hey, do you need help? 
or you know do you do something to distract so that the person who's being harassed can get away there's a it's it's way beyond kind of our very simple idea of like that you must intervene and physically break up a fight so these bystander interventions have proven to be one of the more effective ways to disrupt things for example like campus sexual assault. So we're looking at how those those can kind of be expanded into other realms as well. And I know some of Jackie's work also focuses on drinking, not to put you on the spot, but Jackie might have something to say as well related to that. What interventions are in place right now that can point in that direction? For example, in our schools, I know you do social work, uh, Julia, and you do social research as well. So is there anything available right now that can point in a culture change direction in the future? I think that's a great question. It actually really t goes back to what Jackie was just talking about, about healthy relationships. So there is within, very different from when like I was in elementary or high school, right? Like I got like some sex ed maybe that talked about condoms and that was probably, and STIs, and that was probably about it, right? Now there is, depending on the school and a bunch of other factors, there is more kind of education around healthy relationships, for example, starting at much younger ages. So we actually do start to see some of that in elementary schools. And actually, myself, along with Dr. Allison Cares in sociology and Dr. Julia Lumi, who's a postdoc fellow at, uh, at UCF and part of the Violence Against Women faculty cluster, all of us are, actually just received a small internal grant where we're going to be helping two community organizations here in Central Florida, uh, Victim Services Center and Safe House of Seminole County, help them kind of improve or evaluate their prevention education programming. So. 
these organizations have a staff person who can go into schools when schools request somebody to come talk about healthy relationships or consent. There's a kind of a range of different topics. And often uh, there's not a lot of budget within service organizations, right, that are helping victims for this prevention work. But most agencies do try to do some of this prevention work because they recognize, again, that the only way that we can really stop this is if we change you know, stop violence from ever occurring is changing the behaviors that might lead up to violence. And that, like Jackie said, we really need to be doing that at, at a younger age. which I think also speaks to the way that exactly culturally violence has been normalized as, you know, excessive jealousy, excessive is just normal and it's what is expected. I think these types of campaigns are moving the needle in a different direction and say, hey, this is not acceptable. And some people even call these too extreme. It's like, oh, it's not physical violence. Well, there's many other way, other forms as we have learned today, right? So I see that you both are engaged with the community and conducting either research or supporting through evaluation. You can only change what you measure, right? So if there's any resources out there that our listeners can refer to if they want to either stay in contact with the organizations that you work with or if they're interested in participating in research, how can they reach out and stay in touch? Maybe I'll talk about community, some community resources, and then Jackie can talk about specifically UCF and kind of our Violence Against Women cluster and other things as well. But so at the community level here in Central Florida for people who are interested in maybe volunteering at a domestic violence shelter or, or connecting, working with survivors directly. We have several organizations that help serve survivors. So we have a Victim Services Center, 
which is in Orlando, is the Rape Crisis Center. They serve victims of uh, sexual and domestic violence. We have the Seminole ha- the Safe House of Seminole County, which is domestic violence shelter. Also at, at UCF, we have victim services for UCF students, faculty, staff. So those are some of the, and I'm, oh, I, I knew I was forgetting one. And uh, Harbor House is another domestic violence shelter as well. And all of those organizations, um, I believe accept volunteers. Um, so those are great community organizations to connect with. And when we say volunteers for our listeners, I, I love the three T analogy that you can contribute with your time, your talent, or your treasure. So you can either volunteer some of your time, you can do help with your expertise, just like Julia is doing right now, doing evaluation for those, or you can contribute with your treasure. You can always do some donations, either in money or in kind as well. There's always uh, resources that are needed for these shelters as well. This makes me think that even in circumstances where violence is not involved, just moving is a big change in life, right? You go from one house to another, there's so much planning and the logistics are so big. Now think about doing that in an emergency scenario where it's a life or death, there's a big threat. Trying to do that overnight uh, requires a lot of planning, requires a lot of emotional engagement and those support systems definitely are needed to help survivors do that transition. Now, what about those survivors that decide to stay in a relationship? You mentioned that there's some support systems in place. How can we make sure that that's a safe scenario for them? A couple things, but one of the things is like, you know, I, I teach uh, social work students and many social work students when we talk about this issue say, you know, if I have a client who discloses, you know, they're being abused, I'm going to tell them they have to leave. 
I'm like, that's actually the last thing you want to do. First of all, it's not empowering, right? We don't tell people what to do. We brainstorm with them and help them come to their own conclusions. But as Jackie mentioned, when people leave is, is the most dangerous times in terms of risk for homicide, which is a, the ultimate lethal you know, outcome that we do not want to see in these types of relationships. So we never want to encourage people to leave unless they're ready to leave. And then we want to work with them to talk about how to leave safely. So again, talking about safety planning. But safety planning is not just a tool that we can use when survivors are seeking to leave, but also for survivors who are staying, which many many survivors make the choice that they're going to stay in the relationship for a variety of reasons, right? It might be they have kids together. It might be they don't have the financial means to leave. It might be that they hope that the, the abuse will get better. It might be that they're scared that if they leave, they'll get killed, right? There's, there's so many different things. So we don't know what's going on. So we want to support survivors in their choices. If they're saying they want to stay, what you can really do is work to do a safety plan, even if they're staying. So there are many websites that will help you through this. Um, the National Domestic Violence Hotline has a safety planning, somewhat interactive um, tool, where, but you can talk about things like having an emergency bag ready um, so that if you need to leave the house, you can. Having a safe word or a code word that you can call and somebody will know that means, okay, I need to drive and get you. Other kinds of things to keep yourself safer within a relationship where there is the potential for violence. Research-wise, are you actively collecting any data that you want to plug in? I think also, you know, if people are interested, they can check out the, the cluster through UCF, the Violence Against Women Faculty Cluster. We have a website. So people are welcome to check out our bios. There's contact information there. If they're wanting more information, they want to get involved in projects, kind of hear what we're doing. I know also Jackie's lab has a website, if you want to tell us about that. And I appreciate the job that your lab is doing because in season one in the podcast, we learned that minorities of all kinds, sexual minorities, ethnic minorities, we have the issue when we conduct research that because it's a minority, we tend to lump everyone together into a single category and we struggle then to tease out what do we mean? Does it affect you know lesbian women the same way it affects gay men we don't know because we ended up throwing everybody in the same under the same umbrella right so i appreciate the job that you're doing targeting specific communities and understanding specifically what's going on
So we will leave some of these resources for our listeners in our podcast website, and we will be linking also the social media and websites for the resources either for victims or for those of you who would like to volunteer your time, your treasure, or your talent to these shelters. They're always welcoming. We would like to thank our two guests today, Jackie, Dr. O'Connor, and Dr. Werner for joining us. And we would like to thank our guests today for joining us. And we look forward to more episodes. Thank you so much for joining us today.